Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. But got the job and, and was taken into Bill's office and met Bill. And for the next two and a half years, because it's a stint job, I spent uh, a lot of time with Bill, <laughs> traveling and working on speeches, internal and external, doing international events and things like that. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Warrior, today's episode is jam-packed, so I'll try to keep this short and sweet, but I am jazzed about the guest that we have on today. Jeff Ressler, CEO of Clean Power Research, has had a remarkable career. From designing the park experience at Disneyland to designing the user and audience experience at Microsoft, he's learned firsthand how world-class thinkers leverage data and software to improve the lives of customers. Jeff and I cover a ton of ground in this fascinating interview from why he left Microsoft for clean energy to how his company's products help solar installers and utilities alike manage the ever-expanding complexity of renewable energy integration. We even get into the story of how he scored their sweet URL, cleanpower.com. Tune in today's episode to learn how he graduated college without a job and ultimately ended up traveling the world with Bill Gates for two plus years and hear what compelled him to leave the nest at Microsoft to grow and eventually run the software company that helped launch and manage the California Solar Initiative. If you're in the Suncast Guild, you'll get even more great stories in the private feed as I'm going to be publishing the behind-the-scenes pre-interview that I did with Jeff, where he goes into even more detail about how and why he made each transition in his career, including how he negotiated his roles at Microsoft and even how he negotiated his internship at Disney and so much that we couldn't fit into this episode. Well, if you're new to Suncast, I encourage you to head over to mysuncast.com, where you can see our more than 200 episode catalog of inspiring and influential clean tech leaders stories. You might also want to check out the guild, which I just mentioned, and hop on our tribe mailing list. You can stay up to date with all our goings on. That's also how you'll get the details to attend our tribe exclusive Ask Me Anything, which I'll be hosting with Jeff in the coming weeks. Date to be announced only in the tribe newsletter. So jump in it. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we're going to discuss not just the present and future of clean energy, but reminisce a little down memory lane with a software executive that has transitioned their career. Mr. Jeff Ressler is Chief Executive Officer of Clean Power Research. Perhaps it's a company you've heard of before or used their products. In his more than 10 years at the company, Jeff has grown their flagship product, PowerClerk, into the industry-leading energy program automation solution. He's also overseen the inception, introduction, and growth of Solar Anywhere and Wattplan, another software family that they have introduced to the industry. As a software industry veteran, Jeff has deep experience building effective cross-functional teams. And today, we're going to have a fun ride with Jeff learning how he made the transition from corporate America to clean energy. Jeff, welcome to Suncast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Nico. So, Jeff, I am curious to understand so much about what I've come to learn of your trajectory and your past. 
But first and foremost, as I got to know a bit about how you came to the sort of the software industry, the thing that stuck out to me and probably is a fun conversation piece for you at most dinner parties, I'm curious to understand how as a product manager in a relatively sort of junior to mid-level position at Microsoft, you rose to the position of speechwriter for Bill Gates. And I'd love to hear what exactly that job entailed as well. Sure. Yeah. So I was, uh, I joined Microsoft um, after spending a year at Oracle. So I got out of school in 1996, spent a year at Oracle in Redwood Shores as a product manager, and then uh, met a recruiter uh, for Microsoft at Oracle Open World. He was not uh, clearly identifying himself as a recruiter for Microsoft. He was actually a Microsoft employee recruiting, in fact. I had a conversation with him and I had an open mind about going to Microsoft. So I headed up there in 1997 and I became a product manager on the, on the tools team. And I was a product manager on Visual C++ and then later on C Sharp and, and what can be called .NET. And that was a great team to be on working with uh, a relatively small team by Microsoft standards in those days, a couple hundred people that were doing tools uh, inside the company from a development and, and product management standpoint. But we were building things that people were using all over the world, including most of the people in Silicon Valley writing software for Windows. And at that time, late 90s, uh, Windows, of course, was, was just the dominant OS for consumers and businesses. So yeah, I was happily sort of going along as a product manager. I ended up getting pulled onto the SQL Server team. Some of my bosses left the tools team and went to databases to work on SQL Server. And uh, I, I was pulled over to, to help them launch SQL Server 2000. And happily uh, acting as a lead product manager on that product when I got a call and the voice on the other end of the line, I could tell it was an internal call on my phone there at my desk at Microsoft. And uh, the voice on the other end of the line said, would you be interested in interviewing to be Bill Gates' speechwriter? And I said... I don't think I'm qualified, but I'd be happy to talk to you guys. And that sort of started me on this journey of, of uh, working for Bill. And that person on the other end of the line was Bill's uh, speech manager at that time, a guy named Stephen Van Ruckel. And so I, I uh, went through a bunch of interviews and didn't even talk to Bill, actually, which I found odd uh, since I hadn't met Bill to that time, been at the company almost four years, wow. um, but got the job and, and was taken into Bill's office and met Bill. And for the next two and a half years, because it's a stint job, I spent... Uh, a lot of time with Bill, <laughs> traveling and working on speeches, internal and external, doing international events and things like that. I'm curious if you have any sense of why you were targeted as a, as a candidate. And after that, I'd love to hear what that first interaction with Bill was like, having not met him before. The tradition with that role was uh, that internal people were hired, people with good product knowledge, people that were good with press and analyst relations, but also technical, could understand Bill could sort of probe the depths of the company to find the interesting things that were being worked on, whether that was in research or in a product group or some, something uh, an international subsidiary might be doing on a, a sort of humanitarian basis or, or a charity basis somewhere. Sort of find those things, coalesce them in interesting stories, and then help Bill tell those stories at different events. And so that internal knowledge was important. Uh, product managers had a lot of the skill around talking to the press and talking to the public and helping craft stories and messages. And then coming out of tools and SQL Server, uh, I certainly had a pretty strong technical background. Always had an affinity to uh, tools and people out of the tools group. Uh, and I think if you look at their exec staff today, you see that pretty well reflected. So it was consistent with the, the trajectory of uh, a couple other people who had had that job before me. How did you prepare for that interaction? And was there anything in particular that surprised you about, about moving into that job that you didn't expect? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, you know, I hadn't met Bill before I did an interview with him. And so I sort of walked into his office. I was certainly nervous. I was introduced by an outgoing uh, speech manager. And, uh, and Bill and I hit it off really quickly, actually. I 
both very curious people. I like to read a lot. That's certainly one of the ways I prepped was, was reading and having my ducks in a row and, and providing context for where and who he might be speaking to. I remember a good example being a speech he made before the Italian Senate, you know, sort of doing some historical research around that so he could have some sort of powerful illusions to draw in his, uh, in his speech there. Just that passion for software and, and, the, and the effect that, and change that software could, could bring, I think, were, were very common traits for us. And I'd love to ask him about sort of how things got started and when he and Paul were starting out and uh, the sort of the history aspect of things. At, at this time in the early 2000s, when I was working for him, as you mentioned, Microsoft was really sort of at, a, at the top of its game and uh, done a great job returning to that position, I, I would say. But things like Comdex and CES were huge events for the company. Bill would speak at those. And a lot of uh, folks from the old days, uh, uh, folks that had been at IBM that originally developed the PC when Paul and Bill were negotiating the MS-DOS, PC-DOS, as it was called then, contract with IBM, you know, would show up to these events. And, and they'd let us know, and they'd, they'd, people wanted to see Bill. And so they'd come backstage. And it, would be, it was great to sort of be a fly on the wall in those, those uh, meetings, which were really friendly, sort of reminiscent of, of the past uh, for those folks. So I actually got to meet some of these people that had been around at that time doing this great work that really propelled um, personal computing uh, forward. So that was a that was a neat thing. But yeah, just a lot of things in common about about curiosity and passion for technology. And it was a great position. I, I always say that one of the best aspects of the position it was certainly fun to hang out with Bill and, and get to know him. And uh, he was very good to me and was my mentor after I left the job uh, as I stayed on at Microsoft. Probably the best thing was having this ability to sort of carte blanche to go around the company and look at all the interesting stuff the company was doing and think about how to showcase that, think about how to tell stories about that. And sometimes that was to inspire people inside. Of course, often, most often, it was, it was designed to, to inspire people outside the company. Uh, and that was just a, a wonderful thing to get those demos and coordinate those moving parts to, to make things come together and, and really present a compelling story. Yeah, and you moved from product development, product management into very much a product marketing and even commercialization role, which I'm certain has helped in the evolution of the software products that, that Clean Power Research are bringing to market now. What do you feel like you really learned or had as core takeaways about product marketing through the process of going around with Bill and even getting to, like you said, the carte blanche of all the cool new stuff from Microsoft? I'd say that just a focus on the core value proposition. What's what are the differentiating aspects of this of this product? How is it going to make things better? You know, delivering that succinctly, proving it. Uh, I, I very much come from the the demo culture of Microsoft. Um, it's something we have, and I try to instill here at Clean Power Research. Show our products off and let the things we say be represented in the products, and, and that has some some benefits. It certainly makes it real. Uh, you want always want to avoid as a software person, the sort of appearance to your customers or, or prospects of, of vaporware, as, you know, as, as it's called. And so building things in the demos that are real demos running on production environments uh, or, or demo environments that are basically duplicates of production environments. That's, that's how we do things. That's how we did things there and at Microsoft and, and uh, how we do things here at clean power research. So Bill was very effective at, at telling those stories of the products and especially telling the story of how things fit together. Obviously, Obviously, he was often talking to, to large audiences, but when he was talking to small audiences, it was often very senior people, um, certainly when you're talking to business audiences, sort of C-level folks. Those folks are often concerned, uh, understandably, about what's next. Uh, how can I be prepared for what's next? And so he, Bill, did a great job of explaining the moving parts and explaining what was coming next. Sometimes, sometimes not very popularly. There was a, in fact, I think it was Chris Capicello was helping with this time, but uh, working for him, but he, Bill famously made a speech to the, uh, 
National Association of Newspapers. I'm getting the, the name sort of wrong there. I uh, can't remember the exact acronym, but it did not go over well. Um, but the things Bill said about the change that was coming, this was in the mid-90s, uh, 97, probably, or maybe even 96, uh, those things proved true. And so in that regard, it was prescient. He was doing his job uh, as far as informing them. Uh, but you know, sometimes people don't want to hear uh, the directions um, and because innovations can be painful in some cases. It seems that this role is a catapult, not just uh, for someone's career, uh, but also for their um, their continued growth within Microsoft. And as you mentioned, it's only two and a half year stint, very intense one at that. But uh, afterwards, how did your career at Microsoft evolve in a way that you feel prepared you for what you now are sort of living in at Clean Power Research? Right. So after I, I, uh, I left the bill position, it was supposed to be sort of two years. And I, and, uh, Bill, to be honest, Bill sort of finally said, Hey, you have to, you have to go do something else now. No. I didn't really want to leave. I was having a good time. Yeah. But, uh, I was in a new relationship with a woman who ended up being, becoming my wife. Um, uh, was my wife today. And so it was, it was a good thing because it was to, to move on. <laughs> uh, and not just because it should have been a two year stint, but because it was the right thing for me as well. But, uh, and I think the, executive staff at the company very much saw these sort of chief of staff and speech manager type roles as roles that were, uh, you know, they were certainly preparing people to be leaders inside the company. So I had plenty of conversations as I was getting ready to leave with people around the company about where I would go and what I wanted to do and, uh, and things like that. And ended up going to the exchange team to lead initially lead technical product management for the exchange product. So exchange is, uh, company's mail server. It still sits behind Office 365 for mail and it's what serves up the web version of Outlook and things like that. And so I joined that team and uh, ended up being the director of the Exchange product. And that was an exciting time because we, to the point of your question, we were in the early stages of thinking about where enterprise software was headed uh, as far as how it was going to be provided. The company Microsoft had had a sort of failed effort at a heavy software as a focus bundle of technology with something, with something called Passport, uh, which had an identity compo component uh, related to it, which some listeners might remember Microsoft Passport uh, being marketed to them. But you could have a Passport identity, but behind the scenes, Microsoft, this is in the late 90s, was developing a host of different services that businesses could use for billing and metering and um, connecting different web services and all sorts of things like that. And it just didn't, it didn't, it was a little early for that. Um, but by sort of 2005, uh, 2006, the company was in a better position to go out and build, take some of these properties that were trusted in, in enterprises around the world, things like Office, Exchange, SQL Server, and, and, and start to, to run them for companies. The Microsoft IT group had actually done some experiments running in the outsourcer for IT for a couple of large American corporations, and that had gone very large companies, Fortune 500 companies, and that had gone quite well. Um, and they were doing that in close conjunction with the Exchange uh, team in particular. Um, because of the first service these companies generally wanted automated uh, or outsourced was was email. And so we, with the success of that, we started looking closely at how we were going to offer uh, services, uh, those services online. And so that originally was called, uh, that became Office, what's now Office 365 was originally called truly Microsoft uh, naming fashion, uh, Business Productivity Online Services or BPAWS. That's an awkward and long name that they finally fixed. But uh that's, you know, that's what uh, is out there today that uh, tens of millions of people around the world are using, uh, especially at work, though a lot of people increasingly as consumers are using that, uh, that same underlying technology. So that was a fun effort to sort of shift the mindset away from 
large high scalability on-premise software and towards hosted software, software as a service with Microsoft as the hoster in effect, where all those enterprise abilities, scalability, availability, manageability, programmability, et cetera, as the so-called abilities in the enterprise software space, those are all still important, but the scale and uh, availability requirements, the uptime requirements in particular are just beyond what most companies could possibly imagine doing themselves. So sort of four nines plus kinds of availability. So 99.99% availability over the course of a, of a year. And Doing that is not trivial. So it's a huge engineering effort and it's a big marketing and pricing uh, effort and licensing effort as well. And so uh, I was deep in the throes of that with a, a broader uh, exchange team. And eventually, of course, that spread to to other teams inside of Office and the other um, business uh, server products at Microsoft. What a fantastic uh, time to be in the internal workings of a company that was very much creating the foundation for how software would be built and sold in the 21st century as we see the the software revolution take hold you know there were some industries that that didn't gravitate towards software uh mostly for security reasons like uh, the utility industry that you guys are currently are currently working to empower and enable into scalable services that are not hosted on site but before we jump into the problem that uh, you've now spent the last 10 years uh, solving I, I was curious around not just the work that you did at Microsoft, but you know, it seems to me that you did this at a very young age. Was Microsoft where you went to, uh, I presume not straight out of undergrad because you did mention a stint at Oracle. Right, I was at Oracle for one year and then went to Microsoft. Gotcha. And I'm always curious how folks, uh, especially uh, coming out of um, a, a, an esteemed university like Stanford, uh, end up choosing the path that they want to take. How did you go about the thought process or maybe even uh, early work experiences that, that got you to decide on software and Oracle? Yeah, that's a great question. I, at Stanford, I was a, an industrial engineering major of all things. And that key, which doesn't exist under that name anymore at Stanford, uh, it's now called something else, it is sort of more easily thought of as a degree in, in optimization, looking at systems and processes and, and figuring out how to optimize them. And the best internships I had during my undergrad years were two consecutive internships at Disney, wow. where I was working at uh, at Disneyland, in fact. And I had sort of really scrapped to to get the first internship. I came home and I to Orange County, so I I grew up in Orange County, and my mom and dad were down there. And and uh, so coming out of Stanford uh, after my sophomore academic year, I was. June headed headed down and my dad saying, Oh, what are you what are you gonna do this summer? And I said, Well, I'm I'm really hopeful I'm gonna get something at Disney. I've I've got a, a contact name that I pulled from the uh the binder at the uh, career center at Stanford and I'm really optimistic this one's gonna call me back. Well my dad would didn't think that was a very likely uh, scenario, but I was sort of persistent in leaving this woman, uh, Karen Hall, uh, lots of voicemails and uh I was back at back in Orange County and she finally called and um, she said, well, why don't you come, why don't you come in and, and see if you might be able to help us. So you cold emailed and called someone in a, that you found in a book at Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. These days, you know, it was, it was pre, it was pre, I'm, I'm undoubtedly this is online now and I don't even know if there's a physical career center at Stanford anymore at all. But, but yeah, in those days there was a physical little building, actually a very central building right on the Stanford campus by one of the clock towers. That was the career center. And it was a very busy place, as you might expect, between about uh, February and, and April or May. And then it sort of waned because people, people were finding things while I was in there looking around, probably starting in, in February or March, but, but also through, through May and into June before, before the academic year ended. And I had found Karen's information and she, she was uh, 
had been undergrad at Stanford and then done a, a master's, an MBA um, outside of Stanford and was at Disney. And I thought, well, I, you know, if she, she's, at, I was at Disneyland down in Orange County. I thought, well, if I got a job down there, I could stay at, live at home and go to the beach with my buddies and have a good time. And this would be great. And I could still have, you know, work for an outstanding company. And, you know, like I said, I finally, I finally got that call and went in to talk to her and she sort of asked me about my Excel skills and I, I had decent Excel skills. And he said, well, I've got this, this model, the attractions planning model, and I want you to work on it. That would be your summer project. Are you up for it? I said, I'm in. And that thing was a gigantic Excel spreadsheet with some Fox Pro database linkages. Mm-hmm. I think I was actually using, uh, using Excel on a Mac uh, back in those days, which I was familiar with having come out of Stanford, where, which was a Mac school. Yeah, I got, I got to work. And that attractions planning model was focused on the new Tomorrowland at, Disney, at Disneyland. And they were freshening up uh, Tomorrowland. And then the next summer, I came back again and did uh, a variety of different projects. And the interesting thing about those projects was they were sort of truly industrial engineering projects. So Disney, in the theme parks division, actively hires industrial engineers. In fact, the guy who's the president of the Disneyland Resort uh, now, or the, the head of it, is, uh, is an industrial engineering uh, major from Stanford. The reason they do that is, if you think about a theme park, it is not that dissimilar from a factory in many ways. There are discrete units and you want to efficiently move those units. You know, the product at the end of the day for Disney is happiness, is, is, is enjoyment, is fun. And the company spends a lot of time thinking about that, but you have to move people around and you have to do it as efficiently as you can. And so the skills that you learn in industrial engineering around optimization, linear programming, things like this, those are directly applicable to queuing and ride, ride throughput and things like that. And so there was a whole science around that really that the company developed and was actively using at all the parks around the world. So it was a, it was a great and fun thing to be part of. Through that, I got a lot of exposure to software, um, more exposure. And I was pretty good in Excel, but I, I will admit to uh, needing to brush up on my skills. And so I actually read the Excel product manual. This is back when they shipped physical product manuals. And it was outstanding. I thought to myself, I should go find, when I got to Microsoft, I should go find the person that the people that wrote the Excel manual and thank them for doing such a great job writing a, you know, instruction manual that was actually enjoyable to read and just very well written. And that certainly helped me get that job done and, and do it well. And that helped me get the second internship, the second summer there. But yeah, that exposure to software, you know, I, I definitely, and being at Stanford, just in the heart of the Valley, I could see the impact of software all around me. And it was exciting, an exciting space. And I knew I wanted to be part of it. So I ended up in my senior year, I got an offer from Disney that I wasn't super happy with because I didn't feel like it respected the two internships I'd had and a basically zero ramp up time that I felt I had um, from an initial offering standpoint in terms of what the salary was. And I, I said, oh, I'm going to hold out and look for other jobs. And so this was May when I declined. I had declined some other offers and I remember my dad talking to my dad on the phone and saying, oh yeah, I declined the Disney offer. And he was saying, what? <laughs> you doing what? You don't have any job offers open? No, dad, I'm going to hold out for a software job. Yeah, that was, uh, he didn't go over well with my dad, but uh, it worked <laughs> out. I, I got an offer that summer between, um, well, after my senior year, um, I was on a road trip and I was checking voicemail remotely back when you could call into your answering machine and, and check your, your, uh, voicemails people left for you and, and, uh, had a call from Oracle. And so I went in and interviewed there and got an offer. And, and so started at Oracle in September of, of 96. Most of the folks listening today are really interested in our global transition to clean energy. And as such, I would love to hear about your first exposure or foray into clean energy and wind and solar power. And, and when you decided or knew that that's kind of where you want to transition your career? Yeah, it's a great question. So at Stanford, I had met a guy named Tom Hoff. 
And he was, I was an undergrad, of course, and he was a PhD student. So he's 13 or so years older than me. And I got to know Tom and his family. Um, he was one of the rare uh, folks I knew at Stanford. One of the few folks uh, lived on campus with a family, excuse me, in grad student housing. And he had a family of four, which was particularly exciting to, to, be, to go visit him in a small, mm. a small Stanford apartment. And Tom was in a, a program at Stanford called Engineering Economic Systems, which also doesn't exist anymore. And Tom was an ex PG&E employee, utility guy, and had had a focus in his career at PG&E and the research group at PG&E uh, on solar. And I had had an interest in solar uh, just as far as an enabling technology. I remember writing a paper my sophomore year about something called the Iridium uh, network. So this time, I believe it was Motorola had announced that they were going to deploy a constellation of satellites in low Earth orbit around the Earth called Iridium. Uh, and it was named Iridium for the number of electrons in an Iridium atom, which I was either 66 or 77, I think. I forget now. But anyway, this, this notion of these many satellites communicating to allow for total earth coverage with satellite phones for consumers. So not just for the military. I mean, the military's had that kind of stuff for a long time, but uh, enabling the satellite coverage for consumers. And I wrote a paper for a class, a graduate class I somehow slipped into at Stanford about uh, the remote sort of sensing capabilities associated with this. And part of my proposition there was that, hey, these, these cellular or these uh, satellites could sort of phone home to the radio network and you know send data and readings and things from remote sensing stations for scientific purposes, right? Without using a relatively high bandwidth uh, connection compared to what was then available for this kind of kind of stuff. Part of that was how do you power those things? And so I sort of looked into the solar aspects of using solar to power remote sensing stations. So when I met Tom, I think he had like a solar panel on his bookshelf and his, his, he had a tiny office in this little apartment they had with all the kids and he and his wife Elaine in there. And, uh, you know, we just hit it off. Uh, talking about that stuff. And he told me about projects he'd worked on for PG&E, like Kerman out in California. And that just, you know, piqued my interest more. So I certainly didn't become an energy guy at that point, but I, you know, it encouraged me to, to follow both what Tom was doing and then just what was happening with, with renewables in particular. I think a lot of engineers and scientists are sort of, um, even though they can understand how, how PV works or how different uh, solar energy technologies work, they're still sort of semi-magical. It's just a, a, a great thing, a cool thing. I was certainly sort of smitten, <laughs> smitten in that regard as well. So you met Tom originally during your time at Stanford. Nonetheless, you went away for more than a decade. And I guess it, it would seem that you both ended up in the, uh, in the you know, greater Seattle, Washington area. Tell me the story of how you came back around to Tom and Clean Power Research. I stayed in touch with Tom. So Tom had another year to finish his PhD uh, after I got out. And so I think he left Stanford in 97. And he, when he got out, he went back to Napa, California, where he, where he had been before he was at Stanford. And he started a company uh, called Clean Power Research. And that was focused on consulting and research for really utilities and to some degree energy agencies and, and national labs like, like NREL. And I stayed in touch with him during this time. And in fact, when I got to Microsoft, I came down and visited and I'd come down and visit them every other year. So and his kids, it was fun to see the kids because I knew them since they were a couple since they were babies. This was fun to watch them grow up a bit. And when I got on the tools team at Microsoft, I would send him software saying, hey, use Visual Studio, which was the collection, the sort of Microsoft Office bundle of tools, if you will. I'd send that to him and say, hey, you know, use, use this stuff. And, and I also made sort of an important recommendation, which was, hey, if you can put this stuff online and charge subscriptions for it, you know, that would be great. Now, this stuff at that point was primarily something that came to be called Clean Power Estimator, which was the company's first 
um, commercial product. And I think there's probably people listening to this that uh, used it back in the day. And it, elements of it are still around incorporated into our current Watt Plan product. But it was the, it was the first online nationwide solar calculator to enter your location. And from, from your location, it would allow you to choose a utility or make some assumptions about what your utility was, what your likely rate structure was, what your radiance was, and then let you, you know, model the economics and the energy impacts and the environmental impacts of solar for you. He had originally been developing that, of all things, as a Palm Pilot application. So some of your listeners will, will remember the Palm Pilot, which is actually a very popular device. Yeah. Probably the first super popular PDA. Yeah. It was, it was, it was the only thing perhaps that BlackBerry disrupted. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. The Palm Pilots were, they were all over the place. And so Tom was actually the calculator, the, the clean power smear calculator for, for that device. I think with the assumption that it would be used sort of sitting down at a table or standing in somebody's yard as they, with a solar installer, as they looked up at their roof and said, Oh, what could, you know, how much solar could I put up here? And what's going to cost me and how much am I going to save my electric bill? But he, he pretty quickly decided to put it online. And I, I was encouraging him, Hey, you know, definitely put it online and and figure out, you know, you know, charge, charge a subscription for this. And so he did that. And in the meantime, he kept writing, writing papers and doing research for utilities and for and for energy agencies and had CEC contracts for research and things like that, CPUC contracts. That got some traction, the software did, uh, Clean Power Estimator, and eventually was adopted by some utilities. And you mentioned, you know, the utilities sort of being especially conservative and with regard to security and online software. And that's true. That's certainly true now. And I think their utilities are doing their due diligence generally, what, what we see. In those days, this is the late 90s and early 2000s, it was sort of a foreign concept, the notion that you'd let somebody else sort of run, run software for you. Though with Clean Power Estimator, it was somewhat palatable because we were just doing sort of simple, relatively simple calculations. And we had all the resources to do that. We had the rates database. I say we, it was just Tom at the time, but he had the rates database and the incentives database and radiance database, et cetera. He needed to calculate things. He wasn't using account information from the utility or things like that. But when we got to PowerClerk in 2006 timeframe, that was a taller order to, to license to utilities because it was another hosted or online service, now what we would call SaaS. But it was both capturing and in some cases using sort of fundamental data uh, for the utility and for the utilities customers, for the ratepayers. Even when I got here in 2008, I, for the first three or four years of, of really pushing PowerClerk, which I was in effect the, the product manager for PowerClerk at that time, those competitions were, were tough. The utilities were the notion that we would run this maybe not mission critical, but increasingly critical thing for them and run it on servers that we maintain. That was a, that was a tall order to get folks over today. You know, that's not really an issue. Um, and certainly the traction that some of the big guys, Microsoft being an obvious example, obviously Amazon, Google with software as a service and with enterprise services for software as a service, not just consumer services. That's certainly helped us as far as not having to convince so much utility IT and utility executives that this is any particularly unique or risky uh, scenario. Now, I feel pretty confident to say that if you're listening to Suncast, you are an infinite learner, always looking for a new approach. And that's precisely why CPS America has agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you each and every week. CPS is the USA market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With more than two gigawatts shipped in America, their feature-rich, high-performance inverters and nimble service team stand out in a sea of sameness, just like you do. 
If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your C&I or utility scale business, you can click their logo at mysuncast.com or shoot me an email for an intro and let them know that you heard it here on Suncast. Hey, Warrior, question for you. Are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize return on investment? Extensible Energy's DemandX software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches the data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes, increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com for a free demand charge analysis for your project. Learn how Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers can put more opportunities and money back in your balance sheet. Jeff, for those who maybe aren't uh, super familiar with PowerClerk and the other suite of products at Clean Power Research, perhaps uh, at more of a 10,000 foot level, um, feel free to dive down any rabbit hole you, you choose. But how would you characterize the problem or problem set that you all are trying to solve at Clean Power Research now? And, and tell us a little bit about the tools that you've developed. I mean, the company's mission is about powering the worldwide energy transformation. And we're doing that with primarily with a suite of software solutions. And those solutions are all software as a service or SaaS, as you heard me mention. Uh, so they're running uh, in a cloud environment. We happen to run in the Amazon Web Services cloud environment. And they are licensed to uh, our customers, utilities, solar developers, independent engineers, etc. In some cases, those uh, products are in turn used by end customers of those entities. So for example, PowerClerk, which is a general utility program automation tool, really started in handling solar incentives, but is evolved to handle interconnection and EV programs and all sorts of other types of programs. End users of that are both folks inside the utility who are automating, who are charged with running a program at the utility, a particular program or set of programs, and also their constituents. And those constituents outside the utility could be installers, say solar installers, or uh, people putting in EV charging stations. And of course, they could also be consumers, customers. Uh, ratepayers. So, and those folks are maybe enrolling in a new program that the utility is offering or trying to find more information and wanting to get uh, on a regular communication program with the utility. Or they might be using a tool like WattPlan to understand the economics of a distributed energy resource technology, a DER. Most commonly that's solar, but increasingly it's EVs. It could be storage. They could be looking at understanding rates, as, as I think most of your audience is familiar with. Solar has has sort of upset, for yeah. lack of a better word, the rate philosophies of a lot of utilities. It's it's complicated those those approaches and philosophies, and so rates have changed in many jurisdictions. I think 2018 was a record-setting year for new rate cases before utility commissions in the U.S. That comes with a challenge of educating consumers. Um, a lot of people don't inspect their utility bills very regularly or very deeply, and so they certainly can't be assumed to understand a very detailed rate or TOU rate or rate with demand charges or things like that. And so tools to help people understand those things, uh, that's one of the, the areas WattPlan helps with. That's increasingly on the radar of the utilities saying, hey, we've, we owe it to the, to the uh, 
to our customers to do that. And, and in some cases, utility commissions are, uh, and regulators are saying the same thing. And then there's one other product family, uh, our Solar Anywhere product family. That's a, an interesting product family in that it straddles the line between utilities and uh, energy professionals. Uh, typical users of Solar Anywhere are independent engineers and solar developers who are using the irradiance data from Solar Anywhere to understand what the solar resource is in a particular location. So the end of the day, the sort of most cared about number out of solar anywhere is, is some watts per meter squared metric of irradiance that can be then plugged into a model to model the potential output of a solar system. So one of the biggest consumers of solar anywhere's uh, data and simulations is actually clean power research, the rest of clean power research itself, because watt plan and power clerk both call into those tools. But the paying customers uh, that uh, use uh, solar anywhere are a mix of utilities and uh, solar developers and then those independent engineers, and in some cases, financiers as well, who are trying to understand the bankability of the, the uh, projects that are being pitched to them by, uh, by developers. It can be, for those uninitiated, a, a dizzying array of options that, uh, that the software can offer to the marketplace. And it's interesting that you have so many products housed sort of within the overarching Clean Power Research brand. I wonder if, if it's a fairly easy process to identify for, for those, again, who maybe you're still trying to figure out, like, how, do I, how would I compare Clean Power Research in the market? Are there competitors or peers who also operate in this space that folks would recognize? There are competitors, certainly. The traditional sort of competitor that we've seen on the power clerk front, and I say this not with my tongue in my cheek, is mm-hmm. has really been paper and Excel and PDF. That is to say that many of the, especially DER and renewables-oriented programs at utilities have tended to start small, even at big utilities. And then as the demand has grown, of the utilities and the energy agencies running those programs, not always utilities, have found themselves in a situation that's like, oh boy, we better get something to, to address this, to automate this, and to make the turnaround time faster for the customer and to meet the potentially the regulatory requirements we're under around processing time. Yeah. In terms of what plan in, in solar where they have direct competitors. So those would be companies that produce irradiance data in the case of solar anywhere. And there are companies in the US and in, in Europe and other parts of the world that do that. And then for what plan, it's fairly multifaceted from a competitive standpoint. There are quite a few EV competitors, so electric vehicle calculators, basically, that utilities uh, use on their websites. Um, certainly, we're one of the, the big dogs in that, uh, in that field. And then there's a number that do PV calculators. I, I, I'm not aware of any that do, that sort of have the comprehensive DER view that we have with PV, EV, storage rates, and where we're going to be adding things over time, like heat pump water heaters and space heating and things like that. So we're taking a very holistic... And that's within the Watt Plan product? That's in the Watt Plan family, right? And, and in particular, the interesting thing there we're doing there is making sure we model the interacting effects of those things. When you get a heat pump water heater, that's going to have an impact on what the space heating uh, might need, needs might be. And uh, obviously, load's going to change when you have an EV. And so really modeling that, giving the customer an accurate sense of what's going to happen to their bill, the end customer. Um, and then also on the back end, helping the utility understand what adoption might look like. That's a part of our Watt Plan family is now as well with our, our so-called Watt Plan Grid product. That uh, product is about uh, adoption propensity or forecasting the likelihood of adoption of different things and doing it in a, uh, in a bottoms up and a top down way so that a utility can really understand, especially for things like EV and PV, where are those things likely to appear on my grid? What feeders are going to be impacted? When is that likely to happen? And at what scale is that likely to happen? So they can model different scenarios of adoption and then 
you know, adjust rates and business models to address those. Yeah. One of the things that comes to mind uh, for me as I'm thinking about, um, and I'm not sure where all obviously power clerk uh, is targeting from a utility perspective, but you know, great example right now, uh, as you mentioned, a competitor basically being, being paper and Excel models is the, you know, the Island of Puerto Rico. Many of uh, our listeners would be familiar with how Puerto Rico is undergoing a, a massive uh, transition right now and how PREPA is being managed. And one of the biggest problems that they have speaking on behalf of the solar installers on the island is that PREPA, the utility, just doesn't really have an efficient way to manage their incentive program. Can you give examples like that where utilities are currently leveraging PowerClerk and and some of the other tools to accelerate uh, their own transition where they had previously been stuck? I think, you know, the original uh, high scale example is is the California Solar Initiative. So, that uh, was run on the first version of PowerClerk, which is now a, a deprecated legacy version of the product that we don't onboard customers to. That helped the CSI scale to the levels that it did. And in fact, there's still some small elements of CSI active, and we're still running PowerClerk for the, the CPC and the utilities in California to run some of those ongoing programs. But that was many hundreds of thousands of applications, instead of applications that flowed through that. Another great example that's been uh, talked about publicly is, is Southern California Edison, where for interconnection, so not incentives now, but for handling interconnection, they run that on PowerClerk and they reduced their interconnection time down from 60 or 70 days down to um, less than three days with many applications being same day. And that's because of some of the automation capabilities in PowerClerk and the ability to really understand and branch in terms of workflow, how different applications are handled. So for example, you know, if an application is less than 10 kilowatts, put it on this fast track, and maybe that can be approved in a matter of, of minutes or hours. In some cases, our, our customers don't even touch certain applications based on criteria, don't have a human review them at all. You know, Things that are larger are more likely to get reviewed. Some of our customers use random auditing techniques that PowerClerk helps them with so that they can even for things that are totally automated or semi-automated, they can randomly audit to make sure that they, the installers uh, or other applicants are actually you know, following the rules of the program. There seem to be a lot of markets, not just domestic in the United States. I'll, I'll name Duke, who <laughs> famously uh, uses their interconnection queue process as a way to, to stiff arm the expansion of renewables, which I'm sure you guys have to deal with. But how about in places like uh, Mexico, and I mentioned Puerto Rico, but places internationally where you see growth opportunities, uh, you know, namely Mexico has a uh, sort of under 500 kilowatt commercial application process that's virtually over the counter, but with the energy transition has run into a lot of, uh, of issues with timing, uh, similar to what you were mentioning with SoCal Edison on the interconnection side, where they can't seem to get out of their own way. How are you seeing your products used to scale outside of the United States? A number of our products are being used internationally, but it's, it's primarily in terms of solar anywhere, where companies are using solar resource data internationally to consider citing generally utility scale plants, some, some cases commercial, but it's, it's generally utility scale. PowerClerk and WattPlan at this point are not being used internationally. So we have had conversations with some of the entities you've mentioned, and we have bid PowerClerk into some international opportunities. But right now, we haven't had a focused effort on taking the products internationally. That is changing. We are, we're working on that from a software perspective. So in the software world, to take a product international, depending on its its nature, you have to do something called internationalization. And that's the process you go through to allow the software to handle different languages, to handle them efficiently. So one approach would be, imagine some piece of software, 
you just make a copy of that software and then you have somebody sort of go through by hand and translate all the strings, all the text, uh, and any, any other uh, motifs that wouldn't make sense to somebody in another country or speaking another language potentially. That is an approach, but it's not a scalable approach. And that's because you are probably going to want to translate the product or be able to license and sell it in other markets as well. And so then you're adding ever more languages and Microsoft's you know, probably the best example of this. Their, their products are available in, in you know, 60 some languages for, for think products like Office. And so to have that capability, you have to have this internationalization capability. And what that means is plumbing the software products so that all the strings that go into those products can be efficiently pulled out of resource files and easily translated. And that's the sort of thing that gives you an experience as a user that you might be familiar with, with you know, clicking a flag for Spanish at the top of a website or inside mm-hmm. an application and you know, the user interface immediately changes. So that's a process we're in the middle of with a number of, uh, of our products, particularly PowerClerk and WattPlan is internationalizing these products uh, because we do see that, that market potential. But for SaaS, there are some other issues as well. One of the things that we'll be doing is we'll be running those products on AWS in those locales. So you know, if you're in Australia, we'll run on in Australia. If you're in South America, we'll run on AWS in South America. And there are multiple reasons to do that. The two primary ones are security sensitivities around data exfiltration from those, those countries, which are uh, reasonable. We have uh, most of our utility customers here in the U.S. have similar requirements that we handle the data here in the U.S. So you can't fault somebody in Brazil for feeling the same way. And the other, and the other one is just simple performance and reduced latency so that the experience of using that that web interface, if you're an interactive user, or if it's a it's a software to software communication, because most of our products are API enabled, um, where they may be talked to by other software over the internet. You want that to be snappy. You want it to be low latency, and uh, and the ability to push a lot of data back and forth. If you do, we're talking about things like interval data or high, other high frequency uh, large scale data. I would love to get your your thoughts or insight on uh, how you feel working with Bill, seeing how he as a CEO is running Microsoft provided you with the tools that you currently employ now as a CEO of a, of a leading software company in the space that you occupy? Being able to be around Bill so much, both sort of one-on-one and then especially in group contexts, did expose me to a lot of how he, he manages uh, things. And he certainly had, and to some degree has, a reputation for asking hard questions. I, I think he did that. In my experience of watching him, he, did, he always did that respectfully, but he was very passionate. And the thing that struck me about um, whether he was an email or as a, it was a so-called bill review, uh, the sort of product reviews that the big products had at Microsoft at least every year mm-hmm. with Bill um, in the room, it was always the context of we. <laughs> so Bill wouldn't call people out and say, or call a product team out and say, you did this wrong. It was always, we have to be better. Why can't we do this? He, he was asking the hard questions, but doing it in the standpoint of how, you know, how can we be better and why aren't we serving customers well? He's sort of famous for these longish rant emails where he goes and tries a product at home, say, installs some new thing. There's a pretty famous one floating around the web about, uh, I think it was Windows Movie Maker. I think maybe Todd Bishop published, published that, that rant. It was an internal email. It's sort of funny to read because Bill's sort of ripping on the product, but he doesn't do it and say, you know, you engineers are terrible. He's saying, why can't we be better? And why is this so difficult? And how are we going to, how are we going to allow customers to really use this and not have people balk and go, you know, buy something else or go buy a Mac or or whatever it might be. So I think he took it upon himself as a, when I was working for him, he was the chairman and chief software architect. He was no longer CEO. He took it upon himself as being 
both the biggest cheerleader for the company to some degree, though maybe not as vociferous as Steve Ballmer, but but also the the company's the company's critic, right? The co- the company's sort of deeply introspective critic. So so he, he that was self criticism. <laughs> we should be better. And why why are these things so hard or inelegant or error prone? Why are there the seams between the products that should be integrated? Customers are seeing a Microsoft brand on these things. They should they should work together. And so that for me that was a cultural element of Microsoft. I think that sort of introspection and self-criticism and, and understanding how to learn and adapt and, and, and make things continually better. But I certainly apply that here at, at Clean Power Research. And with three product families, I mean, we're a relatively small company, about 50 people, but, but we have, uh, it's u- unique for a company of, this, of the size of Clean Power Research of only 50 people to have three uh, successful product families. So I, we're in a very fortunate position. I think a lot of uh, if we had a lot of, if we had outside investors, which we don't, I think a lot of them would be saying, well, why don't you focus on X uh, rather than these other things? Uh, you know, we have a, we're playing a long game here and we have an approach and a strategy that involves um, integrating these products together and making things truly better together. And that's uh, not unlike what, uh, what uh, we were doing at Microsoft and what Bill was certainly sort of shepherding along. Given some of the folks that you've had the pleasure of interacting with and, you know, not least which is Tom, the founder of Clean Power. Uh, research. I'd love to hear if there are any particular key lessons or takeaways from these mentors in your career that you would share with us. Sure, I think uh, you know certainly Bill was it was a unique opportunity to, to both work with Bill for for two and a half years and then to he was very gracious in being my mentor uh, well for my years after I was done working for him, which was five years um, where I was still at uh, four years, four and a half years, <laughs> still at Microsoft uh, and and still regularly visiting with him. Uh, so there are a lot, certainly a lot of takeaways there. I mentioned some of them in terms of asking hard questions and and really understanding where those seams and the products are and and uh, making sure that that you're looking deeply at things and being self-critical. For Tom, you know, Tom Tom is a rare bird in my experience. He is a PhD. He is a deeply analytical person. He is a very humble guy and very genuinely humble. And he is just he's like a kid in a candy store when he gets into deep energy questions and the data surrounding them. He, he just has such a deep passion and curiosity. And he just, he really inspires people with that, with that passion. Uh, and it's, so it's not in a way that sort of, you must do this and, and we're driven that way. It's very much imagine the things we could do if we could understand this better. In some ways he's, he's like Bill and that they're both deeply optimistic. They're, they think about the possibilities of what software and what technology can do to, to solve some of these huge problems we're facing um, in terms of climate, in terms of energy. Tom, he just loves to share what he's thinking about and learn from others about how we might be able to apply some of that work. So he's been great to work with. I, I think he's also got a natural business sense, which that's another aspect that makes him, I think, pretty rare for somebody who's as deeply technical as he is. He and I complement each other very well because um, I'm very much an enterprise software guy and a, you know, a manager. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I love to be an individual, individual contributor as well. Certainly in my position now, I'm, I'm more a manager uh, than I am an individual contributor. But, but Tom has, from the earliest days of the company, when it was really just him before I joined, he had contractors working for him, but he certainly set a tone of collaboration and collegiality that is, that is still here. Um, so we're a very technical group here, mostly scientists and engineers, including in, in marketing and, and uh, even some of our uh, non-technical roles. Uh, those people have technical backgrounds, but we 
we, yeah, we very much have a friendly atmosphere and, and there's a, a shared passion for the types of problems we're solving here that, that I think is uh, largely because of the culture he initiated when he founded the company. Yeah, I may have to have Tom on as well, hear a bit more about his story at some point in the future. I would love to know, uh, given that it is an organization that's focused on the future and, fo- and very passionately looking out beyond uh, the horizon that most people are, are capable of sort of uh, comprehending uh, in, in many cases, uh, I feel like the, the products that have been created by Clean Power Research have, uh, have helped rather than push uh, our, our industry forward, which is great. I'd love to know in that context, what corners are you looking around? What's got you most excited right now about the the, the overall growth of the clean energy business? Oh boy, there's there's so many. I think you know we've definitely seen. Uh, we work with a lot of utilities, of course. Um, that's seventy uh, percent of our businesses is to utilities, and their focus now is is changed in that it's not solely PV or or solely focused on one technology. It, it is much more about DERs and the level at which DERs and renewables are being considered is, is being raised in the organization. And so the sort of traditional utility mindset of, or stereotype of utility mindset of, oh, solar is the pain. It's just difficult for us. We don't want to worry about, we don't have to worry about renewables. We see that less and less today. Um, utilities are trying and in many cases succeeding in being leaders in thinking about how to deploy renewables. And in many cases, that's either toward a renewables, a specific renewables goal or mandate, but often it's, it's, it's just a leadership and a vision from the company that either has to do with carbon or, or specific renewables targets that aren't imposed. And so that's a, a refreshing change to see, you know, you could argue about, okay, what does that motivation come from? And folks have talked about things like the utility death spiral and fears about self-generation and what that means for utilities in the long term. But from what I've seen, it's, it's the utilities sort of recognizing that they have, a great deal of customer trust in many cases. They're known to be reliable and uh, as far as their core job, which is providing safe, reliable power, they do that very well. And so they are the natural folks to step in in many of the cases and be leaders on this energy transformation. So it's refreshing to see that increasingly be the case across the country. Do you see or, or foresee any particular disruption or, or maybe you would herald the coming of uh, this or that uh, sort of new technology or focus beyond um, beyond the the macro of DERs. There's a lot happening. I think the the impact of storage is going to be interesting to see. You know how that plays out. Um, what really happens at the residential scale versus at the at the utility scale uh, for storage. A lot of our customers are asking about that. I think one of the things that we're increasingly seeing that we're pretty excited about internally, based on actually some of the research Tom himself is doing, is how are we going to get to some of these aggressive goals, whether utility imposed or, or utility commission mandated, so utility self-imposed or, or, or mandated by regulators? How are we going to get to some of these goals around carbon and, and renewables without, or I shouldn't say without, how are we going to get to those goals in terms of addressing the existing environment of, for example, houses? <laughs> so there's, there's certainly new houses being built, and, and that's a commonly cited sort of economic indicator, but most of us don't live in new houses. <laughs> Uh, in fact, the day we move in, I guess it's not a new house anymore, right? So this existing housing stock uh, around the country is highly variable in terms of things like the levels of insulation and what the heat sources are and how water's heated and does the house have natural gas service? Does it just have electric service? And so understanding and quantifying the potential for impact towards some of these goals with this existing housing stock 
because a very interesting problem. Um, and we've been working something on something called the virtual energy audit, uh, which is a way to characterize homes using some software technologies in a way that's very minimally invasive compared to a traditional um, home energy audit that involves a, a door a blower door test and things like that. Mm-hmm. Utilities are, are, we're sort of pitching that uh, in its early phases to utilities. And there's a, a pretty, I'd say positive reception to some of those capabilities um, mm. uh, as far as saying, okay, what, how are we really going to do this on a wide scale? If you've got home audits that are happening to, you know, one less than 1% or maybe less than 2% of your customers every year, it's going to take you a long time to really understand what's out there and have the influence with your customers to, to make smarter energy choices. But if you can do that by intelligent interval data analysis, so, so smart meter data analysis in effect, as well as some other approaches for understanding energy usage characteristics of the home and provide a more proactive set of recommendations for customers as the utility. Uh, so clean power research technology working through the utility as many of our products like Wattplan do, you know, then you, you've got a potentially a larger reach and can have an impact sooner. And I think there's a yeah, growing awareness that, that, that existing housing stock and um, people's personal vehicles and things like that are big players in um, both electrification targets and renewables targets. And, and certainly for a, from a decarbonization standpoint. Jeff, you mentioned earlier that, uh, like Bill, you are an avid reader. I often say here that readers are, are leaders and leaders are readers. I'd love to know from uh, your treasure trove of uh, readership, what books have you perhaps gifted or recommended the most and why? Yeah, the one I've, I've gifted most for the last few years has been uh, Mindset, which is, I think, a, now a pretty widely known book by Carol Dweck, who's from Stanford, coincidentally. Um, I know that uh, Satya Nadella has recently uh, publicized recently in the last year or so that he's uh, widely encouraged uh, executives at Microsoft to read that book. But I found that book uh, to be inspiring. And I think because Carol uses a lot of examples uh, from undergraduates and uh, high performers she met while at Stanford, it uh, uh, sort of resonated with me in that, in that regard. And I think I've, I've mostly given it to younger people. So people getting out of undergrad or, or getting their master's degrees. And I think it's been pretty well received. Uh, right now on my nightstand, there is a, uh, anthology of, uh, science fiction <laughs> short stories. So not quite as a, a little more fun than, uh, than, than, than mindset. And what is that book? It's the 2018 anthology of, sh- of science fiction short stories. So it's got a whole host of, uh, it's probably 30 or 40 different short stories. I'm, I'm, maybe only a third of the way through it right now. So, but it's, uh, it's just fun, fun stuff. As we round third base here, heading for home, uh, I have a couple more questions that I'd love your insight on what, what habit or consistent practice has for you given the greatest leverage or impact for your work. I'd say being close to the product team. So I am the CEO, but I try to use the products regularly. I like to demo the products when I get out and talk to customers. I like to demo the products myself. Um, and this is not unlike you know what Bill would do. Bill would take a product home or use it, at, use it, install it at home, and then sort of write this rant email. I, I occasionally write a similar similar rant emails, but mostly I'm trying to get hands on with the products and again understand where those themes are and work through them. And one of the ways I'm able to do that is I spend more time probably meeting with internal folks than I do with external folks. And actually not probably, certainly I do. Um, and so the product meetings every week that we have for the pre-product families, I'm in those meetings, the deep dives that we do quarterly, I'm in those meetings. And so I'm, I'm fairly hands-on as far as understanding the products. I'm not micromanaging the products by any stretch, but I, 
I want to know where they're headed. I want to know what their feature prioritization lists are. And, and I want to go use those things as soon as they're on a, you know, a test server or in a staging server where I can go play with them. I like, I'm a, I'm a product guy and a software guy. So I like to, like to be hands-on. I will certainly list places like uh, Twitter uh, at Clean Power Res, and certainly you have one of the best uh, uh, website URLs in our industry, cleanpower.com. There's a good story behind that, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, for sure. Go for it. Go for it. When I joined Tom, it took Tom two years to convince me to leave Microsoft because I had a great career there, and I'm still a big fan of the company. But he finally convinced me to come to join him at Clean Power Research. And... One of the things I was not wild about was the, that the URL for the company was clean-power.com. Still, all things considered by modern standards may not be that bad, but I really wanted us to have cleanpower.com. And cleanpower.com was pointing to, and this is the honest to God truth, a lightning arrestor company in Idaho. And the, the interesting thing was, if you went to cleanpower.com, this is in, so this would have been in, say, 2006, 2007, it would redirect to a different URL. This guy was probably relatively successful selling lightning arresters, but he clearly wasn't uh, using the clean power domain too heavily because it was redirecting to his primary domain, which I don't remember what it was, you know, Idaho uh-huh. lightning arresters or something like that. And I said, Oh, this is an opportunity. Um, the thing I did that was smart was to spend 20 minutes or 30 minutes reading about how to buy a domain and do that anonymously. And, uh, and I did that. And uh, I think I spent all in, 4,500 bucks to get cleanpower.com from that guy for a long time. I, 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 you know, I considered that one of the company's most valuable assets was that domain name, but uh, yeah, so a funny story behind it, but I, I hope that guy's doing well with his lightning roasters and we appreciate that he, uh, he let uh, cleanpower.com. Well, let's end today, Jeff, as we always do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking of the many things that we've talked about today? I wonder if there's anything new that you might say is in your crystal ball. I would say it probably relates to just this convergence around DERs as an entity that a collection of entities that the utility cares about. And our experience with utilities uh, on DERs is that they're increasingly thinking about them in the context of what is a customer's energy journey? What does a customer need today? What are the natural life cycles of purchases that may affect them from an energy perspective? That could be replacing a water heater, it could be buying a new car. Um, and how can the utility help with that. Uh, and in particular, how can they help with it towards some of these ends of electrification and, and uh, greenhouse gas reduction? So that's, a, that's an exciting change to see, as I alluded to earlier. And uh, it's one that uh, seems to be accelerating and very much, very much nationwide. So not a, <clears throat> not a coastal phenomenon, but, but one we're seeing pop up all over the place. Yeah. So for those who have made it all the way through and aren't familiar with DERs, distributed energy resources, uh, there's a whole body of work uh, around how DERs are, in fact, uh, not just uh, changing the landscape for utilities and consumers, but expanding our capacity, literally and, and uh, virtually, to absorb more uh, more renewable energy nationwide and, and globally. I would agree with you there that DERs are uh, uh, are on a, on a convergence path, and uh, utilities are starting to uh, really lean in that direction. Jeff Ressler is the CEO at Clean Power Research, where they create tools for advancing the energy transformation. Uh, we talked about Power Clerk, Watt Plan, Solar Anywhere, their suite of products, and it was a fantastic, fascinating journey. Jeff, thank you for helping us understand more about uh, not not just the product suite that you guys have developed, but uh, how it came to be and uh, and the ways in which it's impacting our global energy transition. Thank you, Nico. I appreciate it. 
Hey, Warrior, I'm honored that you're still here with me. That puts you in a very small group of folks truly dedicated to growing and learning. I learned a ton here today in Jeff's conversation, but there's always more to glean, am I right? If you'd like to have more time with Jeff and I, then make sure you're signed up in the Tribe newsletter where we're going to be announcing a webinar-style Ask Me Anything with Jeff where you can ask him directly all those lingering questions that come up for you during today's chat. As always, you can find the resources and highlights from the discussion today along with the social media links over on the blog at mysuncast.com. Hey, while you're there, would you please take two minutes more of your life and to fill out our listener survey. It really does help me mold this program into something that really serves you better. Thanks again to our guild members and our sponsors who help make this podcast free to you. You can learn more about both at mysuncast.com. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.